everyone. This is Maureen Fitzgerald, Communications Manager of the Great Lakes ATTC, your host for today's Great Lakes ATTC podcast. The Great Lakes ATTC podcast bring interviews and insights to the addiction treatment and recovery services field in the Great Lakes region and beyond. Today's podcast is our special for Recovery Month 2019. Please welcome today's guest speaker, Mark Sanders, LCSW, CADC. Mark is an international speaker, trainer, and consultant in the behavioral health field whose work has reached thousands throughout the United States and beyond. Mark has been a certified addictions counselor for more than 30 years. He is co-founder of Serenity Academy of Chicago, the only recovery high school in Illinois. Mark has also published several books and contributed to the William White monograph series on recovery-oriented systems of care. An experienced educator, Mark has taught at the University of Chicago, Illinois State University, Illinois School of Professional Psychology, and Loyola University of Chicago School of Social Work. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with our first question for you today, and that is, as a field, when and why did we increase our focus on multiple pathways of recovery? Historian William White said that there was a best day in America to have a substance use disorder, and that was in September of 1978, the year that First Lady Betty Ford went on national television and said, my name is Betty Ford, I'm an alcoholic. Newsweek magazine read an, ran an article shortly after her proclamation that said that 90% of Americans believe that uh, addiction was a disease that should be treated in hospitals, stigma was at an all-time low. The idea was if the first lady of the United States could be an alcoholic, then anyone could be an alcoholic. Back then, insurance companies paid 90% of a treatment for substance use disorders. If that was the best day, perhaps the worst day as it pertains to stigma, to have a substance use disorder occurred June 15th of 1986. And that was when all-American basketball player, Lynn Bias, an African-American player for the university of Maryland, was drafted number one by the Boston Celtics. He was the team with Larry Bird and four other Hall of Famers. After the draft, he went to a party and celebrated by snorting cocaine, had a heart attack that evening and died. University of Maryland is located close to Washington, D.C., where Congress meets. So Congress intensified its war on drugs following the death of Lynn Bias. So in 1985, prior to his death, there were 400,000 inmates in our nation's prisons. As the war on drugs intensified and increased, the number swelled to 1 million by 1995, and by 2005, 2 million. In other words, every decade, the prison population doubled, and it peaked at about 2.4 million uh, seven years ago, and today it's estimated there are 2.1 million uh, people incarcerated in U.S. prisons. Stigma increased following his death, and we started hearing language like crackheads and, and crack babies, and the child welfare system got involved, and many mothers who were addicted to crack cocaine lost custody of their children. So this led to the need to organize, mobilize, and advocate, and we started seeing groups emerge like Faces and Voices of Recovery and Recovery Month celebrations and marches and rallies throughout the country. The idea being that um, if we can show the multiple faces of addiction, 
then it will be hard to stigmatize that you can be a person who's economically poor, wealthy, famous or not, uh, that if we all come together, we can reduce the stigma of addiction. And so people started saying things like, uh, advocates started saying that we, don't, we need to stop debating pathways of recovery because there's strength in numbers. And so we began to talk more about multiple pathways of recovery. And then researchers started studying multiple pathways of recovery, and that's ultimately um, how, how the focus increased. Thanks, Mark. Can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits of honoring multiple pathways of recovery? Yes. The, the assumption that there's only one way to recover uh, ultimately can increase uh, resistance to change. Uh, people are uniquely different. There used to be a mantra years ago that an addict is an addict is an addict. It's just simply not true. That each person with a substance use disorder is uniquely different, and not all, not every person needs the exact same pathway and style of recovery. Secondly, uh, it's re we're talking now with our evidence-based practices uh, the need for client voice, for people to have a say-so in their recovery path and in their style of recovery. Years ago, that each person who went through substance use disorders treatment primarily received the same exact treatment. It was 12, it was, it was some residential programming followed by 12 step recovery. And the research suggests that approximately 2 million out of 20 million persons with alcoholism are maintaining their recovery through traditional 12 step programming. So it's, it's also clear that the other 18 million may be motivated by something else. I had a colleague whose husband um, was suffering from uh, alcohol use disorder, and we recommended that he go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he came back from his first meeting and said, I just can't say it. My name is, say, Mike, I'm an alcoholic. And it was really clear because it was based upon the stigma of substance use disorder. So we were able to refer him to smart recovery instead, where he didn't have to say, my name is Mike, I'm an alcoholic, and he uh, has been able to put together two years of recovery. That's a, that's a great example. Can you talk a little bit about pathways of recovery that are uh, unique for African Americans? Yeah, so it runs the gamut. Uh, those traditional approaches such as uh, treatment-assisted recovery, so there are lots of African-Americans who go through treatment. Some have a pathway of recovery that we call maturing out. The old-timers used to say, I became sober because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So some will initiate recovery without formal treatment. Uh, other African-Americans' uh, pathway of recovery includes 12-step involvement. There's a myth that says that African-Americans, um, and 12-steps in African-American communities is not strong, and nothing can be further from the truth. They're thriving 12-step um, programming in African-American communities. Another pathway is what we call faith-based recovery. When crack cocaine hit African-American communities in the 1980s, um, managed care also had a stronghold uh, on addiction treatment. And ultimately, between 1985 and 1995, it's estimated that 90% of inpatient addiction programs across the country closed. In other words, a drug showed up that really scared the whole nation, and there was no shelter in terms of recovery. So every denomination of African-American church in America formed drug ministries in response. So there are many African-Americans who are recovering uh, by involvement in drug ministries throughout the country at their church. 
their recovery home programs, that there were many African Americans in recovery who responded to the disappearance of residential treatment by becoming entrepreneurs, that is, opening their own recovery homes to support the recovery of African Americans. There's recovery sports. In Philadelphia, they started a recovery program that's called Recovery Basketball. Historically, there were many African Americans who had dreams of becoming professional basketball players so that they could, quote, buy their mother a house. And many did not make it to the NBA. That became their segue into active addiction. Now in recovery, the Basketball League in Philadelphia requires persons um, to achieve six months of recovery, and then they can participate in the league. And once in the league, they can support each other's recovery. Some African Americans have uh, went the route of Eastern approaches to recovery. So when you interview them, they will say that yoga, meditation, taking quiet times, and breath work are important parts of my recovery. Others have taken a nutritional route. Um, I wrote a short story about uh, a person, an African American man, who said that he went from heroin, heroin sorry, from heroin to uh, becoming a vegetarian to ultimately becoming a vegan. And he said that I nearly destroyed my body through the use of alcohol and other drugs, and now I'm uh, improving my health uh, through nutrition, which was his primary pathway of recovery. Others have taken an advocacy route, and this is not new. William White once told me that the first prominent American recovering alcoholic was Frederick Douglass. And he uh, has a, a public story that, that one could Google on his recovery from alcohol. And Frederick Douglass believed that alcohol was a way of controlling those who were enslaved, so he gave up alcohol and started what was called the Black Temperance Movement as a way of motivating through advocacy other African Americans to recover. Malcolm X believed that alcoholism or drug addiction was a form of genocide in African American communities, so he had a program that he called Fishing for the Dead. Primarily, he would go into prisons and help to change the mindset uh, of African Americans who were incarcerated and ultimately led so many into recovery. And as we speak, there are many African Americans today who are in recovery who view their advocacy um, as, as a main part of their own recovery. There's medication-assisted recovery. And just as medication-assisted recovery has stigma throughout the country, uh, that stigma also exists within African-American communities. And so I'm a member of the Illinois chapter of NADAC. We have an annual Recovery Month luncheon. And one year, we had a luncheon simply to celebrate the recovery of clients whose primary pathway of recovery was medication-assisted. And each year after that, we've made sure that at this annual luncheon that persons whose primary pathway of recovery is medication-assisted sit at the table so that we can honor their recovery as well. Thanks, Mark. That gives us a really good picture of the different pathways of recovery. Are there any pathways of recovery that are especially effective for African-American women? Yes, so there, there's several that come to mind. Um, William White talked about a pathway of recovery for African-American women. It's called shifting allegiance. And the way that works is that uh, you could survey African-American women uh, in the first four years of their recovery, and many will report that they're maintaining their recovery uh, through traditional 12-step communities. And if you follow up with them in the fifth year, many will shift from traditional 12-steps into the church. 
as a style of recovery. Uh, there's a book that's called No Hiding Place by Pastor Cecil Williams. You may recognize his name from the movie Pursuit of Happiness, starring Will Smith. That was the church where uh, Mr. Gardner, who was homeless at that time, would seek shelter periodically. And um, Pastor Williams started a, a program within his church. Well, any given Sunday, there might be 2,000 people in attendance at the church service, and 1,600 of them are in recovery. Ultimately, every Sunday, there's like a church revival for recovery right there in San Francisco. And one program discussed in the, in, in the book, uh, specifically for African-American women, is called African-American Queens Revisited. So the women attend these groups where they read stories about great African-American and, and African women who have lived throughout history, and they read the stories out loud to each other. And um, also, uh, there's a woman who was uh, Maya Angelou's niece, and she was Stevie Wonder's hairdresser when he would perform on the road, she left her work with Stevie Wonder to uh, help these women with their recovery. And as a cosmetologist, she would um, 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 highlight external beauty, and then uh, the women would read these stories, which would tap into internal resilience strength and internal beauty. And between these two approaches, uh, they would help a lot of women with their recovery. Thanks, Mark. Those are great examples as well. Are there any other resources that you recommend that could help organizations that are seeking ways to help their clients find a multi another pathway of recovery? Yes, and so um, every year they have, I believe in Florida, they have a multiple pathways of recovery. And so I recommend people attend that conference and, uh, and then ultimately uh, just find what pathways which might be valuable to the community in which they uh in which they, they represent and see if they can introduce those communities to various pathways. Uh William White and Ernie Kurtz has written have written a lot about ma multiple pathways of recovery and you can visit that website. It's www.williamwhitepapers.org. And also I am the curator of the Online Museum of African American Addictions Treatment and Recovery. Uh, our website is www.museumofafricanamericanaddictionsrecovery.org. And we have a section on the museum that's called Scholarly Articles. And one has been written on multiple pathways of recovery for African Americans. It provides even a greater, greater depth of information about what we've just talked about on this podcast. And I recommend the book by Cecil Williams, No Hiding Place, which tells a story about how one church can comprehensively um, address addictions recovery within African-American communities. Mark, how can treatment organizations help a person seeking recovery select a pathway of recovery? So as I mentioned earlier, choice is really important, both reducing resistance but also increasing the chance of follow-through. So there's a one-page tool that I use uh, when I'm working with a person seeking recovery to help them discover what's most important to them in selecting a recovery support group. So it asks questions such as, in selecting a, a peer-based recovery support group, what's most important to you? And examples include members who share my ethnicity, members who share my drug of choice. For example, um, I used to take um, teenagers to 12-step group meetings, and they preferred marijuana anonymous to the other 12-step group meetings because the teenagers I worked with at the time their primary drug of choice is marijuana. Members who share my sexual orientation, 
members who are similar age, members who share my religion, members who are non-religious like myself, they might say, or members who have an attitude that's positive about medication-assisted recovery, members who live in my neighborhood, individuals who's not live in my neighborhood, etc. And so by asking such questions, we're able to make recommendations based upon what's important to the individual. Thanks, Mark. I think that you pointed out that's very important to always keep the focus on the individual. Right. Thank you. Well, thank you for being our guest speaker for our Recovery Month 2019 podcast special. Thank you. I just was hoping that uh, through our, our discussion today that there are people who benefit from the information that we talked about. Yes, thank you. And another resource that we encourage everyone to turn to is the ATTC Network. Our website is attcnetwork.org, where you can find resources related to choosing multiple pathways of recovery. Today's podcast was produced by the Great Lakes ATTC. All Great Lakes ATTC podcasts will be available for download from the Great Lakes ATTC website and from the products and resources catalog on the ATTC Network website. The title of our podcast theme song is Home, an original piece for guitar composed and performed by Steve Waugh.